dude, Apple, I mean, I mean, a MacBook Pro, I got Apple earpods in. You know what? The only thing that seems to be working right is this, whatever, the microphone, which even then, hold on, is that even on? <laughs> oh, it's painful every week. I'm going to start taking antacid before we even do this. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to settings. Is my uh, <laughs> blue ball even on? My blue ball. Your blue ball? Your yeah, blue see, ball? there you go. Even my ball wasn't even on. There we go. Now my snowball's on. Totally cool. Ridiculous. <sighs> Brandon, how's it going, buddy? How's it going? Just had another enrollment for the Pinnacle Concrete Camp just like 10 minutes ago. Really? So That's that right. is a total of five this week so far just this week we've had register in the last week so i've had several emails in the last you know 10 days now that people have been hitting me up and saying hey i want to get in class is there still room yes there's still room but the pace is picking up and it always does so if you want to get in don't wait because it will sell out and when it sells out that's it we don't have additional people because literally we have no place for those additional people to sit and so when yeah. we're up in the, the meeting area and we're showing slides and uh, having discussions, if we have too many people, people are standing around or, you know, sitting on the floor, things like that. And we can't have that. So we cap it. We don't max. We don't go past that max. So if you want to get in the class for November, get in the class. Otherwise, the next class will be in the spring at some point. Not sure when. It kind of depends on COVID and travel restrictions, all that kind of stuff. If there's a spike again in the winter, which they think might happen, that might influence when we do it. I'm thinking February or March, but it's up in the air. We don't know quite yet. The point of that is, if you can make November, make November. It's only, what is it? A couple, three two weeks, weeks away Two now? weeks. Yeah, two yeah. weeks. Two and mm -hmm. a half. So if you can make that class, make it and start 2022. I got the year right this time. 2022 off the right way and have a profitable 2022. That's what I'm thinking about today. Well, there you go. And it, I mean, as long as we're talking, it goes right in the line of an investment in yourself, right? Investing in your education, investing in success, meeting people. I mean, one thing I think that could be said, if anybody's come to some of these training classes, boy, you, you sure become almost like a part of community, right? You get to meet people. A lot of these people go on, you know, become friends af afterwards, businesses. And, you know, talking to a guy like myself who comes from a fairly long academic background, bachelor's degrees, you know, farm D's, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the training is is a huge part of becoming successful. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah, 100 percent. Our guest today is Jason Robertson, Artifact Manufacturing. He's in Ohio. And Jason's been to, I want to say, three concrete design school workshops in the last couple of years, he's been to quite a few. He's going to be a good example. We'll speak to him about that, but he's a good example of somebody that's come to classes. Those classes have set him up for success in experience and training and knowledge. But on top of that, he's made really valuable connections and friendships through the trainers and through the attendees. And that network of, of friends and peers has really, I would say, been one of the biggest benefits for him, I guess, I learned a ton, but I made a ton of friends. And those right. people I talk to every day, every week, and we bounce ideas off each other, problem solve. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's that social network that we create, that sense of community that Concrete Design School 
creates that's really valuable as well. Well, and that'll be interesting to talk to him because he comes from an academic background as well. It's like, I can't remember if he was a uh, philosophy or psychology or, or something like that, but I do remember he came, or maybe he was even a professor. I can't remember, but it was something along yeah. that line. Well, that's my yeah. nickname for him, the professor. The professor, yeah. really? Yeah. So maybe he was. I think he I was a professor. A <laughs> yeah. I like Jason. He's a good. So, I, sometimes I feel like when I talk to them, though, he's got this very mild way of talking. Like, like I feel like I'm talking to my psychiatrist. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I've never had a psychiatrist. So, <laughs> you know, when we started this podcast, we always kind of had like a topic of conversation that we would discuss ahead of time. And, you know, we're focusing on plasticizers and things like that. Something that we had talked about talking about was proper curing of concrete and what oh, that yeah. means and why that's important. Do we want to talk about that? Well, sure. I continues to be a massively misunder yeah a massively misunderstood kind of thing is how to properly cure concrete and the reality is concrete to g- attain its highest density we don't ca- really care about strength so let's just talk about density uh, color saturation uh, easeability of sealing what we call curing the best way of curing is ambient steam meaning you know you wrap the concrete up you create the tenting effect. Heat is optimal. Maintain that heat for a certain period of time, which ultimately leads down to a path of a quote unquote properly cured concrete. If people 99% would just follow that, they'd also watch 99% of their problems go away. <laughs> and most people don't realize that. So, yeah. so if I, we're properly curing concrete, explain that. What, what, what is properly cured concrete? What are the steps people need to take to achieve properly cured concrete? Two things. Trap the moisture in the concrete or around the concrete, which would mean what they call cure blankets or fabric directly in contact with the concrete, followed by plastic directly over that, which would be trapping the moisture. And then some versions of insulation around that so that the concrete doesn't just spike up in heat and cool down immediately but instead maintains that heat or that exothermic spike for a prolonged period of time, minimum 24 straight hours to as much as 36 to 48, which brings in the next caveat, which be a heat blanket, where the heat blanket is doing nothing more than keeping the insulation warm, not letting the concrete cool down, basically. So those steps, which we go over you know, in, in the workshop, we go over all that stuff at CDS, that makes a dramatic performance difference in the concrete and then ultimately sets up a performance difference for sealing. Yeah, I'll Major tell you what I do. I know you do it slightly differently than me. I've, I've seen dramatic increases in density and sealer performance from doing this is after the concrete, I always cast upside down, GFRC, SEC type casting. But after the concrete gels, I cover it with polyester felt. Then I cover it with plastic. Then I cover it with about four to six layers of just cheap packing blankets to act as insulation. And I make sure it goes over the edge and over the edge of the table. When I come in in the morning and I put my hand underneath there and I check it with a digital thermometer, it's 130, 140 degrees, 12 to 14 hours later. Mm -hmm. Super warm. I mean, 
you can't hardly hold your hand against it. I cover it back up. You know, I just put my hand underneath, just check it. I cover it back up and I continually check it throughout the day, sometimes into the next day. But what I'm looking for is I don't do the packing blanket like you do, but I understand why you do it. But I'm just checking until it gets down to room temperature naturally. You know, it does exotherm. And then by doing those steps, it just really slows the cool down of that exothermic spike. And so instead of cooling down over the course of two or three hours or even less in a really cold shop, it will take 14, 16, 20 hours to cool down. Right. But by the time it gets to room temperature while it's still covered, then for all argument's sake, it's kind of completed the, the benefit of the covered cure. And at that point, we can uncover it, process the underside, however we do that, and flip the piece over onto foam strips to allow air to circulate. But you'll see a dramatic increase in the density. If you tap on concrete that's cured that way versus concrete just cured open air, no covering, no insulation, there's a dramatic resonance, a different tone to the two pieces. So if you cast a one-inch tile and cure it properly and you tap on it, it'll sound like porcelain. It'll have a ring to it. And you can audibly tell. And if you tap on one that wasn't cured that way, it's a thud. There's no resonance. It's just a, a dull thud, thud, thud. And that right there tells you everything you need to know about how dense that concrete is just based on the resonance of those two tiles. Agree 100%. Yeah, a lot of people do. And what you're calling your, you know, for me, I just, well, I purchased them, nine-pound moving blankets. That's what's used as my insulation as opposed to your packing blankets. That's all. Yeah, I was just thinking about when I did that for the very first time, I always grind the underside of my piece, the bottom. What, you know, when I cast, it's the top, but when I flip it over, it's the bottom. But I always hit it with a grinder, just a really, really fine grinding wheel that's just going to smooth out any slight little bumps or protrusions of glass fiber. But the first time I ground the underside after it's cured properly, it was noticeably denser and much more difficult to grind smooth. Yeah, much harder. Because yeah, before, no question. yeah, before it was soft, I could hit it with a grinder and it would just cut it right off super fast. And it was dusty, you know, tons of dust up in the air. But once I cured it properly the very first time, and I'll tell you, the very first time that I cured concrete properly was that conference table at my old studio that had the fabric form kind of mountains in the middle of it. That was the very first piece I ever cured using this method. I learned that from you. When I ground it, it was incredibly dense and difficult to grind compared to the concrete I'd been casting at that point for eight years. So I had a lot of experience with just air-cured concrete, which Hiram Ball had told me Oh, yes, fine. The the polymer is a form-filming polymer. It rises to the surface. You don't need to cover it to cure. And that's probably true. But you see tremendous gains by curing it properly. You know, you you can cast concrete that's maybe not going to fall apart when you move it, if you're going to hang on the side of a building or whatever it is. But if we're casting a countertop, a sink, a coffee table, we want something incredibly high-performance. Just by that little step of curing it properly overnight will make a tremendous difference in the end product. No question. You know what? I'll do a write-up on a monthly tip on that. Probably even take pictures. It seems so simple, and it really is when you think about it. The dramatic change in performance of the concrete is undeniable if a person puts those head-to-head, even in, in their own shop. Yeah. Cast, cast a sample tile, treat them both two different ways, Cure this one air cure. One walk through what we recommend and flip them over. And just like you're saying, the first thing you're going to notice is that tile cured the way we're describing will be incrementally harder 
you know, which tells you more cement hydration has happened in the same period of time compared to the one that was air cured. Yeah. And I would wager that it's heavier if you put it on a scale. It should be. What do you say? Yeah. Oh, no I mean, question. I would say I, I've I've never actually tested it, but I would say just based on my own experience, when you cure concrete properly, and especially a big piece, and you go to flip it, it's heavier than air cured concrete that's the same size. Because that that first table I made, it was noticeably heavier for me. Yeah. Because all that moisture didn't evaporate; it was forced into hydration into crystalline growth within the concrete itself, right. instead of just evaporating off into space and creating essentially a sponge material. Well, and I, that's a whole conversation that or, that a lot of people, I shouldn't say they don't understand, but I think it's taken for granted. We keep using this word called hydration, hydration, hydration. And what does that actually mean? Is just what you said. What we want is that water to become crystalline form, the CSHs, the intronites, you know, the things that makes the concrete strong. What we don't want is that water to leave as vapor out of the system creating a porous, lightweight concrete, comparatively speaking. So when you say it's higher density, yeah, that's really what we're saying. More water has been converted to crystalline form than the one that was not. Hence, you got a higher quality product. If we cure concrete properly, it equalizes the quality of the concrete year-round. In the sense of if I cast in my shop in the summertime, when it's 85 degrees and 70% humidity, and I let it air cure. Yeah, I'm going to have okay concrete. But if I cast that same concrete in my shop in the wintertime, when it's 35, 40 degrees in my shop, it's going to exotherm and then cool extremely quick. And I'm going to have extremely weak concrete in comparison to the concrete I cast in the summer. But if I cover the concrete and cure it properly, it doesn't matter if I cast in July or in January you're going to get the same result. And so it's a great way to get very, very consistent, high-performance, high-quality end results just by that one step. Year-round, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, you'll always get great end results by doing it that way. Well, it solves a lot of problems. Because just what you say, once you become consistent in what you're doing, how many times, even for us, when we started doing this, it seemed like as seasons changed, we were constantly chasing new problems once we figured a way to make our casting and our curing consistent by using consistent steps, our product became consistent and more of our problems went away because we weren't chasing it anymore. I agree. Are you saying consistent or consistence? Consistent with a T. You know, I just, I got this California accent. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) Right? From California, man. Everything. Uh. What's up, bro? <laughs> uh, why don't we get Jason Robertson on the line and have a chat? What do you say? Sounds good. Yeah, I like Jason. We'll find right, out. What, what, seriously, what was he, a philosopher or a uh, psychiatrist? I can't remember. We'll hit him. There's only one way to find out, John. Let's do it. Let's call him. Jason, yeah. good to hear from you, man. How are things going? He's yeah. the brains, too. That's John's the brains of this operation. It's like when we went to Australia, huh? <laughs> Dude, it's scary. Uh, 
It's scary. <laughs> Dude, we went to Australia. We got our bag searched, right? We got there. We got we got pulled out of line, got searched, like a deep search. They pulled us in a room. Yeah. And uh, my bag, they opened it up. This lady opened it up. And my bag is the most organized bag you've ever seen in your life. Like, I have everything in cubes. I roll my clothes. I color coordinate them. So t-shirts go from, like, white to black in a gradient. My underwear, my jeans, my socks. It's all perfectly organized in cubes in my bag. So she opens up my bag and she goes, did you pack your own bag? I was yeah. like, yeah, why? And then she unzips the first cube and it's my t-shirt cube, right? And she folds it open and all these t-shirts are in killers. perfect order. Yeah, only serial killers <laughs> pack like that. Well, hold on. So she like, she she opens up my t-shirt cube and she looks at it and she looks at me again and, say, and goes, I'm gonna ask you one more time. Did you or somebody else pack your bag? I was like, what are you trying to imply here? And right about then, John's bag, the guard opened his, and it like springs <laughs> open because John just like put everything in there and sat on his bag and yeah, zipped it close. Yeah. Nothing's folded. Nothing's folded, dude. It looks like he just took like a garbage bag of clothes and dumped it in there and sat on it. So his bag like explodes open and all these clothes just fall out. And I'm like, he's the brains of the operation. Like that guy's <laughs> the smart one. What are you trying to imply here? All good times. Jason, how's it going, man? Good. Doing really well. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Uh, tell us something. Where? Give us some background so everybody knows who we're we speaking with. Yeah. So um, we're in Ohio, and we've been at this concrete thing for about a year and a half. So I took my first concrete course. I think it was about six years ago. It was a shorecrete course, and um. I met a guy down in Arkansas. I was duck hunting and this guy was getting into concrete and he says, yeah, go take this course. I went and took the course. It was not, it was just like a product commercial kind of thing. Like I didn't learn anything about concrete. I really like the short creed rep. Um, so that didn't go well. And then two years later, I ran into this guy again in Arkansas and he's still doing concrete. He'd gone out to Arizona and taken Brandon's course. This is years ago. And he's like, no, he's like that, you know, that first course I told you, like, that's nothing. You got to go to this course out in Arizona. And at that time, I was a full-time faculty member at a university. I was just a hobbyist. My wife wanted concrete countertops. And I thought, well, I'm off in the summer. I'll teach myself how to do it. And um, so he said, yeah, go take Brandon Gore's class. Well, it took me a couple I think Brandon and I traded messages. This was like going back to 16 or 17 Kind of traded some emails back and forth. It wasn't until I think 18 that I finally decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, pay for this course and go. And so I went to the course and um, about that time I was doing my PhD at Northwestern University. I hated academia, had to get out. Chicago is a horrible place to live. For us, we didn't like it. And we had three boys. We were wanting to raise our kids around our parents. And so we we're trying to figure out how to get back to Ohio. I had all this money and time invested in education. And we just decided, you know what, let's start a concrete business. And um, I think I went back and took a second course with Brandon. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually gave up a, a faculty position and we moved uh, back to Ohio to be close to family. And that was about two years ago. And still, while I was here, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do the concrete. I don't know if I had the confidence to do it. Um, but after about six months of trying to find a job and that really not going anywhere, I was like, all right, let's just, let's go for it. 
that's leaving out a lot of details, but that's kind of how I got here and how we got started. I got connected with Chuck um, in one of Brandon's courses, and then Chuck connected me to Dusty and uh, just became good friends with those guys. I've been back to a course. Um, I think last year I went to another course. Um, I've been up to Canada a couple of times working out of Chuck's shop. I've been down to Nashville a bunch of times working out of Dusty's shop uh, about a year and a half in. Yeah, good for you. That's awesome. And so yeah, we're, if you don't mind me asking, what are you working out of? I mean, do you have a pretty good size shop? Have you stayed small? What do you got going on? You know, on? it's funny. Um, I've got a three-car garage. It's about 780 square foot. I complain about it all the time. The, the podcast, last week's podcast that Brandon talked about his shop, just putting things away when you use them. It's funny. Like I've, I've started employing that in the last 10 days. It's made a difference. I think the space could be better. Uh, more organized, but I'm grateful for what I have. You know, I've seen some pictures recently of guys working out a single bay garage, and I think, well, it's it's not. It could be a lot worse than what we've got. There's been a couple of projects where we did like a 1,500 pound island for someone, four inch thick profile, and I did go down to Nashville and Dusty helped me with hand. I just don't have the the means to handle it without a forklift. You're not handling that piece. There have been a couple of times where I've I've gone down there and. He's helped me with the bigger projects, but you know, so far, most of what we're doing, we're able to accomplish right here. We've got a six by 12 casting table and it's actually full right now with concrete. So yeah, we're doing the best with what we got. Nice. And you're using maker mix, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if we were an early adopter, but I feel like we were a um, couple things about me. One, I don't geek out about the chemistry of concrete. I just don't. I'm in a lot of the Facebook groups, groups that you guys have referenced and a couple of other podcasts. And there's so many acronyms and mixes, and I just don't geek out about the stuff. I mean, quite frankly, I don't have time to. I mean, we're trying to do this business. I've got three boys, teenagers, they're in sports, and I absolutely detest batching things out. Hated it. You know, the opportunity came along to do this blended mix. I've spent, I mean, who knows how many hours I've spent on the phone with John just since we began our business and tried to understand it the best I could. And yeah, we, we got in on it, I think pretty early on and immediately loved it. You know, other guys on the podcast have talked about, I used to stand there with plasticizer on my hand and a ho hose in one hand, plasticizer in the other, waiting for my eyemer to start screaming. And right. I, I, I just hated that whole process. First batch of maker mix I did. I just, you know, the blendability, obviously that's, that's not its greatest sales point. The greatest sales point point is obviously it's performance the aesthetic all of that kind of stuff but for me personally just being a, a being practical early on grabbing those bags throwing them in the mixer dumping my ice water in and mixing it i mean i, I was sold just based on that alone yeah and that ease of blending yeah i mean that was some of our early conversations it was huge that, uh, yeah yeah so that was huge yeah so that's awesome cool. and that kind of ties into just the lack of space that we have you know having little room for for all the batching out i got a skid in my garage i pull bags off um, i've got three boys that work in the business the other mix that we were using it was there was a design but there it was so subjective it seemed like whereas with the maker mix it was more objective i could say grab this grab that um, it was just easier for me to let loose of mixing to my kids uh, because i just felt like it was simplified I was going to say usability is a super important aspect of maker mix because, you know, if it's hard to mix or impossible to mix, you don't want to use it. 
And uh, so that aspect of the product line, Maker Mix, Rad Mix, and the best plasticizer is by design uh, because we make a super high performance mix, but you can never blend it. You can never mix right. it up. You can never pour it. It's that balance. Since we've switched, the stress of mixing the concrete, um, it's gone. You know, for someone who has years of experience, they understand concrete a lot better than I do. You know, that might sound silly, but for us, it was a huge selling point. Yeah, we took a big risk moving our family here and starting this, you know, starting this business. I could alleviate as many stresses as, I mean, there's enough stresses with concrete. I don't need just the putting it in the blender and blending it up to be stressful too. As you say, taking the risk, you know, I, I think you've taken a lot of the risk that a lot of people are doing, right? I mean, per our conversations, and I'll let you elaborate on it, you started out by essentially taking out a loan. And you have had a steadfast, you and your family, steadfast about how you're operating and solely moving forward on a cash-only basis um, mm -hmm. to, you know, to make your family finances work. So, I mean, tell us about that, because that is one of the challenges and that you are definitely dealing with. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my wife, my wife is a physical therapist. We've, we've both been salaried employees our entire adult lives. So we had some money, you know, to, we did have money set aside to invest. But when we moved here, we took $40,000 loan, line of credit for the business. And boy, that went quick. Just tried to, we spent most of it just on infrastructure turning, not all of that, but it was amazing how quickly you add up all the tools and polishers and air compressor and getting a casting table built and polishing carts and all of that. Um, so yeah, it's really scary, you know, uh, to be totally vulnerable with you. My, I have family members that think I'm insane. I mean, think about my poor mother. She used to tell people her son was a professor <laughs> and she, when she heard that I was going to do concrete, of course, you know, we live in totally different universe than the guy out pouring her sidewalk. But when she heard I was going to give up my faculty position to do concrete, I mean, she was devastated. It's a huge risk. I mean, huge. There's, there's still people that think I'm, you know, crazy for what we're doing. I'll be honest with you. There's day, there are days where I'm out in the garage. We call it the shop because just to call it my garage doesn't feel official, but we call it our shop. You know, there's times where I say, what in the world have I done? One of the cool things about the past year is I've built a really nice network of people, uh, people that I can talk to. And that's really what's got through the last year and a half, having guys that experience the same, you know, challenges with concrete and regardless if they've got one year or 20 years of experience with it. So yeah, it, it, it's a vulnerable place to be for sure. It is vulnerable, but it isn't. I worked in corporate America, not as long as you did, but I worked in the world, and I can't imagine academia with all the politics and everything that goes along with, with that. If you're not happy, you're not happy, you know? And if you don't want to do that, you only live once. And yeah. I think too many people feel like you're going to live forever, and you could get T-boned by a truck today when you back out of your driveway, and that's that, you know? And yeah. I think we all think we're going to go on and on and on, and we're not. And taking risks is what it's all about, and, you know, doing what you want to do. And it, it might work out, it might not work out. But that's life. And even when it doesn't work out, that is part of the experience. Everything doesn't go great all the time. So, you know, I, I feel what you're saying. And I felt the same way. There's been many times that I 
think like, what the hell am I doing right now? But then I remember like, dude, you know, just look at a photo from a hundred years ago of all these happy people that had huge plans and ambitions standing in front of their shop with a brand new sign. And, you know, they're going to take over the world and not a single person in that photo is alive. And every one of their stresses and worries and bills and taxes and everything they have no longer a worry. And nobody even remembers, you know, what, what they did or uh, what they went through. So, you know, I just kind of always remind myself that this is just a temporary experience and try to make the most of it and have a good time. Even when it feels overwhelming, just, you know, realize it's not going to last forever, man, and make the most of it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of focusing on the, the challenges of it, but the positive side of it, you know, I taught for 10 years. If you're a professor in a university and you're teaching anything in the humanities, I taught in the philosophy department. I taught philosophy and religion courses, world religion courses. And if you're teaching those courses, you're teaching a bunch of students that don't give a shit about anything you're talking about. No one's majoring in philosophy anymore. So I'm just teaching gen ed courses and um, with a bunch of uh, students that really don't want to learn. They're not in college really to learn. They're just to get a degree. And I, we just started, I started, when I turned 40, I started evaluating what I wanted the next 25 years to look like and what I wanted my kids to see. And, you know, I still value education, but I don't know that I'm just going to send my kids to college. You know, I've seen the other side of it. And I think having this business, having them work in it, if we build this to what we hope it will be, which, I mean, we're, we're I think for being still in our infancy, we're doing quite well. You know, I want to push my boys toward a trade if that's what they want to go. You know, there are some professions, engineer, doctor, whatever, that you need to go to college. But there are a lot of students that go to college, they have no idea what they want to do, and they take on tens of thousands of dollars of and debt, and we're just not going to steer our kids that way. So some of this journey for us has been not just about me and my detesting academia, but, you know, what is it that we really want to instill in our kids? So mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like, but that's definitely a part of it. I'm along the same line. I mean, for, for a guy who's got, you know, two different bachelor's degree, went on, you know, get a farm D and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to say any of like like Jason's saying, I, I would never say any of that's wasted. I mean, everything I learned along that path are all things that have you know molded me to who I am now. But when I made that same thing, that change over, that risk, yeah, I started nothing. And Aim will tell you, we didn't have kids yet. I had nothing but a credit card. And, you know, the only room I had for buying a polisher or whatever, more cement or whatever the case may be was to max the card out, pay the card down. Max the card out, pay the card down. So that balance was scary. It was scary. And those challenges is like you're trying to do, Jason, is is what I'm dealing with with my kids now too. Is uh looking back on what I've experienced and seeing how that experience helps mold them, not just trades. I mean they can go whatever, any direction they want, but I'm certainly not pushing I mean, I, I guess what I was saying is college is not the only answer, you know, following these dreams, taking these risks, uh, which all can be extremely stressful, but at the same time can have some amazing rewards. And that's that's part of the story. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, to Brandon, to your point, you know, a lot of, well, the Western educational system has mostly focused on cognitive intelligence and, you know, there's a lot of brilliant men and women in academia that could not navigate um, a lot of, well, I'll give you an example. One of my colleagues on the floor, his chair fell apart and there's just a little screw that fell out of his chair. And I watched us, uh, our, sec- our floor secretary walk a screwdriver down to his office and fix his chair because this guy was all kinds of locked up over a screw that fell out of his chair. And I would see this kind of stuff and I would go, what in the world is going on where this guy can't even fix his own chair? Um, and yet he's considered by so many students as a brilliant guy, you know, and of course, advancements in social sciences, we know that there's other types of intelligence. There's the cog- there's not just cognitive yeah. intelligence, there's emotional intelligence, there's intuitive intelligence, you know, and and what we're doing now in this business, I think it's requiring all of that. It's wisdom of decisions and um, having an intuition about um, not just the material we're using, but about the types of, you know, project that we either take on or we don't take on. And so in this world of concrete, um, I don't, none of my concrete friends have even master's degrees or PhDs, but they're brilliant people in their own right. I mean, Dusty Baker's not going to go earn a PhD, but the dude is brilliant in his own way. And mm-hmm. um, as we've started, you know, as we've started to get to know people um, in this industry, I, I just compared to a lot of the faculty that I taught alongside, I'm seeing people far more talented, far more wise, um, far more intuitive. Um, and, you know, it's in this world that I feel like these are my people. And I, that's the best way I could say it. There's just, as I've gone to the classes and I've sat around the table in your conference room and I just feel at home, like these are, well, not all of them, <laughs> but most of them, you feel like these are, <laughs> you know, like these He's are He's talking my about people. you, Brandon. No, <laughs> I know. Well, it's okay. It's okay. No, I mean, it's talking I mean, about me is what's going on, right? No, I mean, I consider I both of you guys incredibly, you know, and in, in, intelligent guys. I mean, far more so. I don't. I I don't know what I'm trying to say. Other than we fell into this, feeling like these are, you know, people that we want to network with, people that get us, people that we feel comfortable with around a craft that we've fallen in love with. Um, it kicks my ass daily, but that I'm in, in love with it nonetheless. And so, yeah, I have, I have, I have zero regret. Well, we just live in a world. I dated a girl in Arizona that she went to, um, she went to art center for illustration and her education was like $120,000 is what it cost for a four-year degree at art center. And, you know, luckily she had a dad that was a lawyer that, that fronted that bill, but I can't imagine being you know, 18 years old and taking on $120,000 in debt just to get a degree. And that's what we're asking kids to do for so many different things. And, you know, there was a time in the 80s and 90s where degrees were much more relevant. But I think today I dropped out of high school when I was 17 and high school wasn't challenging to me. I really felt, and my wife says it's different now. I don't know how it's different, but I felt when I was in school, the class only moves as fast as the slowest person in that class. So if there's somebody that's not grasping whatever the concept is, whether it's algebra or trigonometry or whatever, the class gets held up by that person. 
And the rest of us are just kind of sitting there like, come on, bro, like, let's go, you know, we're, we're running out of time. Let's get to this damn chapter, take the test and move on. But I felt like it was always being slowed down. So I wasn't challenged by school. I dropped out when I was 17. I went to college for a little while. Again, it just seemed to me like I was going through the basic classes. I'm taking things because I have to take them, not because I want to learn them. I'm not going to retain any of this. And I just, uh, the whole thing just didn't feel to me like what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. I didn't want to get a four-year degree. I didn't care about a four-year degree. I didn't care. My parents wanted to get my GED. When I dropped out when I was 17, they were like, well, at least get your GED. And I got it. And they framed it, which I thought was hilarious. They took it down and got it framed in like this big gold frame. I was like, what are you going to do with that? You're going to hang it on your wall? Like my GED? Who cares? You know? Uh, but yeah, I just, I, I think, I think especially today in this day and age, we're looking at that system and we're saying like, that's not necessarily the pathway to having a successful life because you can come to, not to make this a plug for Concord Design School, but you can come to Concord Design School and spend $4,000 on a class versus, you know, 100,000 plus on a college education. And there's a lot of people over the last uh, 15, 16 years that have come to a class, spent that money and started successful businesses that are still operating today that have made a very good income year after year after year by learning a trade and by learning how to make things with their hands that people want to buy. And I think there's something to be said about that. And it's not just concrete. I mean, guys are going into woodworking now a lot more than I used to see. Uh, people are going into glass blowing, metalworking, all these different trades where there's not necessarily a traditional college route for that, but they make a very good living and they support their families and they do something they love to do. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, it feels like a, an honorable task, you know, an honorable journey to me. But being a professor, at the end of the day, you look back and say, what do, what do I have to show for, you know, what I'm investing here? And certainly, you know, I have relationships with former students and all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, in our shop or delivering a piece of concrete, it's just, for me personally, it's more satisfying, it's rewarding, and it's tangible. You know, so much of what you do in the academic world is particularly in the philosophy discipline, just kind of live with your head in the clouds. And, um, but yeah, some of my most brightest students never finished. They dropped out, they were bored. You know, the, the, again, the Western education system tends to work well for people that are very task driven, um, that get their work done on time. Um, and there's some brilliant people that, that can't thrive in that system. Um, for sure. What did you think about Adler? He was a psychiatrist. I want to say he's also in philosophy to some extent. He was a Sigmund Freud peer. Adler, do you, do you know who I'm speaking of? No, I mean, that's more modern philosophy. You know, that's like any other discipline. There's, you know, philosophy goes back quite a while. So, I mean, it's gotcha. Well, Adler, his, his whole thing was essentially, you know, the, the very kind of dumbed down version of his message was absolute freedom is not caring what anybody thinks about you. Living your life from a place of absolutely not doing anything based on other people's perception of you, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, and I'm kind of phrasing it for where we live today, but the house you live in, you don't do anything for anybody but you from that perspective. But he also had this philosophy about raising kids and essentially letting kids, unless it's going to actually do them physical harm, let them do whatever they want to do in a public space. If they're acting up, let them act up. If they want to, jump in the pool in the middle of winter time. If they're not going to drown, let them do it. They're not going to do it again. Kind of let kids be kids and, and retain that wildness to them because uh, that's an important part of, of being a human. But it was really interesting. I read this whole book on 
on Adler and his view of the world. And it was definitely interesting for sure. Yeah. And that's part, that's been part of our journey. It's funny you bring that up because I have a conversation with another friend about the whole social media thing with this, this world of concrete, my academic career, you're always being judged. You have to publish, you have to write, you're presenting, and you're always trying to earn your worth. I mean, for 10 years, it's like I was running around trying to say, everybody look at me, like, tell me I'm smart. Tell me I'm important. And now with the the concrete world, you see the personalities that are out there kind of doing that. I'm not real active in the social media stuff with our concrete. Like I know we have to, it's kind of a necessary evil for driving our business, getting more business and all of that. But um, I don't do a lot of posting and my stories and all of that just because you know, I have this this dark place in my life where I ran around trying to get affirmation all the time. And part of this journey with this new business is I just don't want to do that anymore. It's kind of funny because these Facebook groups that you guys have, again, referenced in other podcasts, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in academia or whatever field you're in. Um, the personalities are the same. So the names and faces change, but the personalities are all the same. So you got the tryhards and you got the people that the contrarians that, you know, no matter what it is, they're going to disagree with it. One of the cool things about this journey is I feel pretty free from all that stuff. I, I don't, you know, I don't really, I have to care to the extent that it, it, it drums up business for us, but I, I see all these sealer groups and mixed groups that I'm a part of. And yeah, it's all the same people from, from my teaching days. They're just, you know, there's faces and names are different, but it's the same people. <laughs> the only group I even go to anymore, I do jump around between uh, Concrete Design School, but mostly just I'm on the ICT group page, answering questions, trying to be a part of that, helping people be successful. That's become my primary focus over the years now is, you know, doing what I can, whatever that means, phone calls, uh, like I was just talking about, sending Jason some videos when I was casting something, you know, whatever the case may be. And I'm far more focused now on just helping those who want to be successful, ones who don't want to fight with me, don't want to tell me what we're doing is wrong or whatever the case may be, is, is focused on instead people's success, which, Jason, you're moving forward right now. I mean, last you and I talked, you have some pretty, what seemed to me anyway, some pretty big things on your plate moving forward, right? Yeah, we... We're as busy as, we, as we've been in a year and a half. When we moved back to Dayton, we have a lot of contacts here. And I had a, a good friend who owns a software company. They just bought a building in downtown Dayton. And he said, man, if you move back to Dayton and start this business, we'll just put concrete all throughout the building. And they completely delivered on that promise. They were really what got us started. And they were buying product for me um, before I really I hadn't made much concrete. And, and we were getting these these commercial contracts. Um, and then, yeah, in recent months, we're, we're still trying to figure out, like, do we want to be in a commercial space, residential? Is it both? But we have, uh, like, three or four breweries that we're, we're bidding right now. And I think one is a done deal. And it's, uh, man, what a huge opportunity for us. Residential jobs are, you know, we're, we're writing quotes all the time. Facebook Marketplace, I still know how I feel. I mean, we get a bunch of tire kickers in Facebook Marketplace. That doesn't really pan out too much. But, um, yeah, it's in the last couple months. That's yeah, a waste of time. It's a, man, I agree. My wife, 
finally, my wife took all that stuff off my phone. She goes, you let me handle social media because she's not annoyed by tire kickers. She'll respond to my give it all you got. I can't deal with it. But I, I, when I say I'm really busy, that's for us. You know, I'm, I'm still not putting out the, the amount of work that, say, Dusty or, you know, other guys are doing. But I will say this. I just got my I got my latest palette and maker mix last week, I think about 10 days ago. And it will be gone in three weeks. So yeah. that's pretty that's pretty good for us. I mean, we were doing a, a pallet of maker mix every every three months, and we're gonna have a pallet last us about four weeks. So that's I think for a small shop, that's pretty good. No, it's huge. Yeah. No, you're working at a faster clip than I'm working. I don't go through a pallet every three weeks. Yeah. I have a pallet showing up today, but that'll last me for two months probably. So that's yeah. amazing. And again, like this is this hasn't happened before. And last year was. October, November was our busiest month of the year. I mean, we had months this past year where I look at our QuickBooks and I have zero dollars that came in. We're enjoying this month right here, but it's a, you know, it's a struggle. We jumped into it. You know, I talked to Edgar, who Edgar was a guest on the podcast and he'd been working with Dusty for eight months. And Edgar is, man, he's a talented kid. His work ethic is off the charts. Um, and I don't, I don't say kid in any kind of negative way, but anyway, he, he was down at Dusty's. We were there together. And I said, man, when are you, you going to launch out on your own? He goes, man, I just don't think I'm ready. I'm like, dude, I started a business having not made a piece of concrete by myself. I'm like, you are more than ready. Um, actually scared me when he said that. I was like, oh man, if he's not ready, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> Good grief. I mean, this guy, yeah. he's more than ready. But, well, we're all letting our own insecurities hold us back to some extent, for sure, you know, sure. whatever that may be. We're all holding ourselves back. Nothing, nothing besides ourselves keeps us from doing the things we're capable of doing. Well, and the other thing you're touching on that I'll just interject on that is, you know, finding that balance. You either get really, really big and bring on a lot of mouths to feed. And there's plenty of people who have done that. or you stay smaller and you just find that I'm going to say fit now, right? You find that fit that works for you and your family. You know, you're paying your bills, you're getting your mortgage done. You're also spending plenty of time with your, in your case, three boys and a wife that, that for me anyway, and that goes back to another story. When aim and I moved back to where we're living now in Murphy's, California, when we made that decision to have children, we also made the decision that neither one of us were going to be that parent that couldn't be around because they were working so much that you couldn't go to the birthday party or you weren't here for Saturday morning breakfast or whatever the case may be. And we've, we personally have found that. So, you know, that's part of the struggle as well. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Well, I've seen, I've seen a lot of guys go through the cycle of getting really big. And it seems seductive. You're like, man, I could have 10 employees. I could get a CNC. I could get a street big wall mount saw. I could get all these fancy tools, a box truck, but the beast has to be fed and it never stops demanding to be fed. So when you get that machine going, it's always needing to be tended to. And so you have to be out there drumming up business, drumming up business. So you're not in your shop. You're not doing quality control. I went through that a very small amount. I had six employees, but those six employees plus a front office person plus myself, so eight people all together, 
required. I mean, for me, my basic my base expense was um, salaries for my employees. So I had to just keep this constant stream of business coming in to sustain that, which means I was never in my shop and the quality started going down. This was back in Phoenix. I don't know, 2007 ish, 2008, the quality started going down and it wasn't that they weren't doing their best. They were, but their best and my best were two different things. My level of quality and what I expected from the pieces going out the door was different than their level of quality. It got to the point where I wasn't proud of what we were shipping out. I wasn't proud of the pieces that we were delivering to clients. Economically, I couldn't constantly redo everything that came out that wasn't to my liking. So when the market crashed and I had to lay off a bunch of people and it got down to just me and a couple employees, that was actually a blessing for me because I was able to get back in the shop. I had way less debt to tend to. I didn't need to have so much business and quality went up. Yeah, I think for us, I mean, we've... I don't know if we're just aiming too low, but we have no ambitions of growing this to some huge concrete business or, um, you know, my journey, and it probably will be clear as I listen back to this podcast, it's more of an existential one. Um, it's, it's, It's concrete is somewhat incidental to the personal journey that I'm on and feeling fulfilled and rewarded in what I'm doing, having something I can make with my hands that I'm proud of. Um, the interactions that I get with our clients, um, all of that, because we we lived in Chicago and we chased what we thought was success. And I would never say we were the type of people to chase prestige, I mean, at all. But I think probably doing that more than even what we realized. And we're we're ambitious. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean, you you don't just launch a, a business like we did without having some ambition. But I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have any desires to, you know, I plan on staying in my three car garage as long as I can. I'd love a shop. I'm jealous. I see on the, see on Facebook when guys get new shops and that would be awesome to do. Uh, but for right now, we're, we're a pretty humble little co- company and it's, uh, it's rewarding and it's fun. And, and to your point, Brandon, I think it's ultimately going to be more profitable. I would say, you know, what's awesome Having a new shop is nice and having a having a big shop is nice. But what's also nice is not having that big payment. That's nice. Well, part of your journey, you, you've told me about, Jason, I'm going to tell you a couple of words that stuck with me that I'm just going to say made me feel proud when you said them to me Bounce. as part. Bounce. Yeah, right. As part of your journey is Bounce. how confident you are now <laughs> in what you're producing. Right. I remember you telling me that and and just that alone being part of your success, whatever minutia of that helping you with, that's pretty cool, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I've said this to clients before, you know, that the, I don't know if 10 years I could have done this, you know, with the sealer, I was always terrified of the sealer aspect of it. Um, as I think a lot of people are. Um, and I've told clients, I don't know if 10 years, I, I don't know what's happening 10 years ago. Cause I wasn't in this world then. Um, but just from what I pick up from conversations, the way the technology has changed with sealers, uh, of course, we exclusively use ICT and have from the beginning. I think the, the biggest thing, when we got our first pallet of Maker Mix, we, so we bought this house in Ohio and we gutted it. And then we put concrete everywhere, sinks, countertops, uh, hearth, um, even like built-ins for our, under our TV, all that. We put concrete everywhere. 
And we've turned our house kind of into a studio where when we meet with designers or architects, we invite them over to the house. We'll have a glass of wine. We'll show them like different finishes or whatever. So that, that's what we did. And I know a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable with that, but we've taken a very uh, personal approach to how we're doing business. Again, because we plan on staying small. I plan on touching everything. Anything that Artifact does, I'm touching it. So it's just the route that we've chosen to go. So we've put makers, maker mix uh, in every room. And I have three teenagers who are pigs. You know, John, yesterday I saw someone <laughs> posted something in the ICT page about some soap spots right. or something on a vanity. I'm like, yep, we've had those. They go away. You know, I've seen what our kids have done in our house. And what's given us confidence is just using the stuff. It's pretty scary putting a con our first concrete countertop we put in homes. I didn't even have concrete myself. I didn't know how it was going to perform. I mean, I gave, I gave, I said the things I knew I was supposed to say based on what I heard the people that I respect say, but I didn't, I didn't really know. I mean, I was really stressed in a year and a half that we've been in business. We have not had one single callback on our product. That in tandem with living with concrete, with kids that don't clean anything, um, is what ultimately has given us confidence and and the product that that we're we're using. Yeah, so that's awesome. the result of you invested in training, so you learned how to do things the right way. You didn't make the mistakes doing things incorrectly, and then you invested in really high quality products. Because yeah, I assure you, had had you gone the school of hard knocks and you decided I'm just going to get on Facebook and do a mix that guys are posting about and hey, the sealer, everybody's talking about this. Let me go get some of that. It would have been a completely different scenario. You would have had peeling, scratching, delamination, staining, because we've all been down that road and it's a painful road. Dusty can tell you about it. I've done it. John's done it. Chuck, yep. your friend Chuck, he's done it. Yeah, those those things are a thing of the past. A lot of guys haven't learned that lesson yet. They didn't they didn't pay for training and they haven't invested in the right materials and they're still going through that pain day in, day out. But living with it is super important because yeah, I have a coffee table in my house that my girls right now are coloring on it with marker. I swear to you. When I go in there, there's gonna be black and red and blue all over it. They spill stuff on it every day. I take acetone and a magic eraser wipe it off, clean it. It looks brand new. And that's been there for years. And it just gets beat to hell day after day. I've never resealed it. Having, I'm guessing, having direct access to those people that designed these products that you're using, you know, that helps a lot too. So that you know, at least you're calling somebody for tech support and confidence that they know what they're talking about, not just read something off a sheet. Yeah, and I think that's pretty, I think that's got to be pretty unique. I mean, you know, like I said, I've spent hours on the phone with you, John, of just questions. And, and you were right earlier when you sent those videos to me on that Saturday of you casting concrete. I'm like, how in the hell is this guy so calm? And I showed these videos to my wife and my wife was like, man, if, if our kids saw that video, they might ask for a new daddy. I'm like, I know. Because when we're pouring concrete, <laughs> I'm an ass. Like, I'm terrible. I'm so nervous we're doing something wrong or, you know, like, it's, that, that's actually getting a little bit better. But, um, 
yeah, just the fact that you on a Saturday <laughs> would send me videos of something we had talked about earlier in the week. I mean, I, I just believe that's, you know, it's got to be rare. And it's it's not to say that um, any product is perfect because I know it doesn't matter what industry it is. There's no such thing as perfection. Um, but the customer service that we've received with this product, it's invaluable. I know, you know I, to this yeah. day, I say we have no callbacks, but we probably will. I mean, I, I see them in the Facebook group. So it's probably only a matter of time before we maybe have an issue, and that's, that's okay. But once it happens, having access to the people who have designed it or uh, people that have gone through it, it is, it's invaluable. I want to hit one other point, and I'll get John to chime in on this. But the Dusty Creed aesthetic that we train in our classes the upright casting techniques, which there's a lot of different looks you can get with that, but it's a hand-tooled finish. Whether it's Dusty Crate or upright casting, in my opinion, those finishes are far superior in real-world, everyday applications for not showing wear, for minimizing wear, because they camouflage any imperfection. I do as cast GFRC, very modern, very monotone and clean. But if you get a soap ring, You'll see it because there's no other modeling of color on that surface. So it stands out. But if it was dusty Crete or upright cast or more uh, industrial, like you're doing, Jason, then you don't see those things. And that's, or you don't see them as much. And, you know, that's a, another way you can minimize client callbacks or worries is if, if they don't notice it, then it's not a problem. Agreed. I call it life-friendly, life-friendly surfaces. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I'm nervous about GFRC. Oh, I just I finished out some GFRC samples today, and you know it's and we got the job, so it's going to be really my first GFRC piece that we've done, and uh, it's a fireplace surround and hearth, so I'm not as concerned if you know maybe it was a sink or something, but you no. know not that there not that there are issues with that, but it's it is one of the reasons, not just the John, you and I have talked a lot about. Um, and I'm sure other people go through this. We've been doing this a year and a half. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what is our look? You know, like, right. we've learned, we've, we, I learned Dusty's technique. Um, Dusty wisely is always changing things up and experimenting with new looks. And we're still trying to figure out what our thing is. I don't know if the, like, full-blown GFRC is our thing. We have noticed that Maker Mix does interact with Dusty Creek powder a little bit differently, not neither good nor bad. It's just, it is a little bit different than the product we were using. Um, but I think it's just natural, whatever your discipline is, you want to start to carve your own path, right? You, so you, you start with your mentors, you kind of replicate what it is that they taught you, what you're doing, but we're now in this transition where we're trying to figure, okay, but what is our thing? Like, what is it that, that we're going to do? We're starting to just play with concrete more. I don't know. Phil Courtney comes to mind. Is he someone who's always playing with concrete and he's always doing things? And and I've thought that you know I need to be doing that more, just playing more, trying to figure out what it is that we're going to do. I'm glad that we're doing these GFRC pieces because it's given me some exposure to something we haven't done. These samples that I made, I gotta admit, they look incredible. Um, super thrilled with them. That that's that's the newest part of the journey. Something John, you and I have talked about. It's 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 overwhelming. It's also exciting that I'm to the point where I don't just want to mimic what other people are doing, but try to find what our thing is going to yeah, be. Tell be your more, story. 
Yeah, right. it'd be a little more versatile with the materials that we're using. Obviously, Maker Mix is, you know, has some versatility to it that we've not even hardly scratched the surface of getting into it. Um, that's that's the next. I think that's the next phase of our journey is trying to figure out what our thing is going to be. I'm just going to throw my little story in there, which started creating my way, if I call it my style, if you will, is years ago, we were down in San Francisco and they were converting some of the old warehouse spaces either into apartments and so forth. And I saw the same thing was happening in Georgia when I'd go out to meet with Sean and those guys in Covington and they were transforming old, uh, you know, dilapidated old um, factories and stuff into condos and so forth and so on. And as I walked through this place, I referred to it as telling a story. I would look at these old concrete floors done in like, let's say the uh, late 18, early 1900s. And over those years, these patterns and these scratches and, you know, all this stuff that happened to those floors, then they just came in and sealed them. They didn't come in with grinding equipment or anything like that, which was another part. The first time I went out to, to Brandon's, I went by myself because I was just out there by myself. And I went and had breakfast at the Crescent, right? The Crescent Hotel, that old hotel that sits up there, old historic hotel. And when I was sitting there at breakfast, I even took pictures of it. And I looked down at the old wood floor and it just blew my mind trying to capture the moments in time that created the story, you know, the markings, if you were all over this floor, you know, what were these were some dance parties, wedding parties, I mean, whatever. So from that point on, that's when I started looking at what I was doing to say, you know, how do I create a story? So it's not about being a perfect finish. It's not about any of that. And so from the upright casting techniques that I show and how to create different finishes, that's the mindset that I started coming from is how do I create a story in these finishes that no matter where you look, it's creating something unique and something that tells a story, if that makes sense. If you're wanting to create an aesthetic as your selling point, which you can you can create a product, a design, um, like like the modern Muskoka chair, that's a design that I'm selling. Or Dusty is selling a finish, Dusty Creed. And so there's there's different ways to approach that. But if you're doing a finish as your selling point, then upright casting, in my opinion, has the widest range of possibility because it's limitless. John in one class, just by switching up when he trowels and what trowel he uses, will have drastically different finishes from this piece to that piece. And it's really insane to see the end product and how little tiny shifts in the process have such a big impact on the end result. So I think that's really for guys wanting to develop a look, that's the way to do it. And the other thing I want to say, Jason, is your company name, Artifact Manufacturing, is brilliant because we yeah. always talk about a Michael Carmody saying, but it's an artifact of the process. Everything we do, all the imperfections in a piece is an artifact of the process of creating that piece. So that company name is such a good company name for what this business is. But you know what's ironic about that? And this is something that Chuck and Dusty give me grief about all the time. I am one who's way too particular. 
you know, like, it's so funny to hear Dusty say, why'd you name your company Artifact again? Because I'm the one, I pick apart everything <laughs> that we do, every single thing. Because you're new. Because you're new. Yeah. We yeah, all, yeah, we all did maybe. that. Yeah, we yeah. all did that. Yeah. Yeah, I joke it's, that I hate everything that leaves our shop um, because there's just so much artifactness to it. <laughs> and it's like, but that's why we named our company. It was about embracing the process, the handmade product and the imperfections that are reflections of the handmadeness of it to make up a word and so we've named our business artifact and yet i tend to be the one that struggles most thankfully my wife balanced me out not to john so we have balance in our company because she is like no i think that's beautiful i love that part of it but yeah brandon you're right there's a there is a when, when you start any business, but I think especially concrete because of the particular difficulties of it, you are fundamentally insecure. And I hope that that subsides over time as we get more confidence. But that, is, that has been one of the big struggles is living into um, our own company name, embracing our own company name, not just as a name on a website, but as a reality of the very product making that's been a that's been one of the tougher parts of our journey for sure well it's a process every single concrete person goes through it and you'll go through it it, it, it's a circle you'll go through it again and again and again and so you'll go through the process of falling in love with the concrete which was imperfect and then you start trying to become really good at it so you take classes you buy these great products and then you're trying to make a perfect product which concrete isn't but you're trying and you're unhappy, which you're in that stage right now. Of, I did this, and there's this one little spot that's a different, you know, modeling a color than I wanted because the concrete does what the concrete wants to do. But that's what the client likes, as your wife is kind of the balance. She looks at it, she's like, no, that's that's what makes this beautiful. It's that imperfection that makes it unique and not core in or anything else. But then you'll fall in love with it again. Then you'll embrace it. This is great. But then something shifts in you again because it's happened to me numerous times. And then you're back to that again of like, oh, you pop it out. You're like, oh, there's there's one little water stain right here where water wicked in between the form and I hate it. And then the client sees it and they're like, oh my God, I love it. Oh man, look at the spot right here. I love this. And you're like, oh, because you forgot. You Somehow you forgot what you once knew. You forgot that people love the imperfection. So it's very cyclical. It just goes around and around. But it's part of it. Well, I've never heard anyone articulate it like that, but as you're talking, that's precisely what I've experienced in a year and a half, probably two times, where I just started feeling really confident, comfortable with what we're making. And all of a sudden, you know, I had a moment about two months ago where I wondered, like, can I really do this? Like, I didn't, I didn't love anything we're making. Now, we would deliver and people would go nuts over what we had made. That drive to their house, I was terrified. Didn't sleep at night because I saw things that I wish were different. Um, and I had one experience very much like you're saying, where the one place I was worried about ended up being the thing that they pointed out and loved the most. Another part of that is, as you're driving there, knots are in your stomach, not just about what's you're pulling on your trailer, on your A-frame, or sitting in the back of your, is then thinking like, how am I going to justify this invoice that I'm giving them? You know, because, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking it from this point of view and and if they end up not liking it, oh, shoot, should I take in 200 more dollars off of that? You know, are they going to hand me a check? Yeah. 
I mean, that's a big part of it too. When you're going through that insecurity in what you're doing because per the cycle, I mean, we all go through it. <laughs> we all go through it. There's that imposter syndrome, which I certainly felt in academia that, you know, I'm really not that good. You know, so you deliver, it's your successes that ultimately create fears for you because you do something really well. And then you start to think, well, I mean, I'm just an imposter. Like, I'm really not that good. What if I don't do this well again? And so, yeah, this again, as I said it before, but this whole venture into the concrete world is is very existential. It's it is about the product, um, but the growth that I think I'm I've experienced, my wife has experienced, our kids have experienced. Um, watching their dad go from working in a university to playing with dust in the garage, you know, it's it's uh, it's really not about just concrete. It's really about life and. It's been a it's been a fun journey, and again, thankfully, along the way, I've had really good good friends. Chuck and Dusty are the two guys I've mentioned multiple times. You know, these are guys I talk to every single day. I've had tremendous support from those guys as we've gotten started. Um, these are guys that now know everything that's going on with my kids and all of that. And without that network, again, you guys, John, we spent hours on the phone. Brandon, you know, I've reached out to you a bunch of times about, hey, what material. Do I need for this or that? That's a great point that a support structure, support network is so important. And Dusty and Chuck are both people you met through Concrete Design School training, which is another benefit of coming to a class as you make those connections with people that are there after the class ends, that you have that connection. And uh, that's super valuable. Troy Atkins is another one who I met at Concrete Designs. I mean, I could list, I bet I could list 20 people I've met at the classes I've been to and any one of them, I could send a message uh, on Facebook or Instagram. And it's been remarkable uh, just the way that people have responded, uh, been helpful. Uh, I know there is, you know, the, the, the negativity out there in social media. I only see it from a distance because my personal experience has been collaborative spirits, um, congeniality, um, lots of support. Uh, I've had guys that I've mentioned to Dusty say, well, just reach out to him. Like uh, Luke Works. I don't even remember his name. Mm -hmm. I know his company's Luke Works. Um, he's someone yeah. who I've reached out a couple times and I mean, just incredibly responsive uh, and helpful. And these are all concrete design school folks. And so, yeah, the network is, is strong for sure. Guys, I actually have a delivery maker mix. He just called me. I had to mute my my mic here, but um, he's going to be here any second. So he's calling me again. So I got to wrap this up. Jason, great talking to you. I'm going to hop off great here. Talking. You and John can wrap it up, but we'll chat soon. All good, Sounds Jason. Good. good talking to you, man. We'll yeah, talk again. With you guys. Sounds good. All right. Take care.